of reflection, repentance, exploring the kind of darker corners of our own heart and surrendering those up to God. We talked last week about the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, We almost witnessed my fall as I had five young volunteers here that uh, pushed me over the edge. (laughs) This week we're going to move into the book of Ezra. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 1. If you're reading along in the lectionary this past week, you should have read Ezra 1 to 6, which will help you out, but that's okay if you haven't. Uh, the first half of Ezra talks about the Jews returning to build the temple. Returning to build the temple. Last week we saw Jerusalem destroyed and most of them, remember some of you were supposed to sit in the balcony this week, but you didn't. You didn't go into exile. But we're, we're only a week later and yet in the text we've jumped 70 years from last week. They've been in Babylon for 70 years Babylon was conquered by Persia, the king's name was Cyrus, and things are starting to change. And where we pick it up in Ezra 1, they're heading home with a royal command to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. They have, in our text you'll see in Ezra 1, support from the king. Ezra chapter 1, we'll just read the first eight verses. We're going to do several different readings today, but we'll start with this one. Ezra 1, 1 to 8 in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Anytime you read the first year, it means there's a king that was defeated, right? Persia has overcome Babylon. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them by Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. Now that's what we see Persia's overthrown Babylon. In the first year of the new Persian king, Cyrus, in order to to fulfill the word of Jeremiah, the prophet, who said, it's going to last 70 years, he writes, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And so this king takes these exiles and he says, Go home and build the temple. Now, that's such a foreign concept. Such a shocking thing to happen. We read it like, okay, he's sending home his his exiles. He's sending them back to build this temple. And not only that, he tells the people of his country to give the Jews gold and silver and goods and livestock and free will offerings for the temple of God. Now, if, if, if you've up on your biblical literature, this sounds a lot like the Exodus where people left Egypt and all the Egyptians gave them stuff to take with them, right? This is a whole returning to that idea. And in verse 7, even the things that Babylon had taken from the temple are brought out and sent back. 
And the people head back toward Jerusalem. It's, it's been 70 long years, but this is a radical shift in their reality and what's going on in their life. They can't believe what's happened. They settle in. We pick up the text. You're going to turn over. To, it talks in chapter 2 about all the people who came back. I'm not going to read that one because names are hard enough as it is. But we'll pick it up in chapter 3 after they've kind of settled in. I want to read chapter 3, 1 to 13. When the seventh month came... Now, that's either the seventh month of the year or the seventh month since they've been there. We're not sure. And the Israelites had settled in their towns. The people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, son of Shelatiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God, of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, They built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shelatiel, Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and the rest of the brothers, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and brothers and Kadmiel and his sons, descendants of the Hodaviah. See, I wish I'd, that's why I skipped chapter two. Hodaviah and the sons of Hernadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with their trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. And with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. See, now what you see in chapter 3 is is initial stages and disappointment. Initial stages. They joined together in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel is this key player in the return from exile. And in verse 3, despite their fears... They rebuild the altar, and they begin to offer the sacrifices. They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. All they have is the altar. And then in verse 7, it begins a period of preparation. It actually takes two years, and they start gathering resources. They appoint Levite leaders for the project, and finally, they lay the foundations, and there's this big, joyful ceremony. They sing to to God in the words of the Psalms, The Lord is good, His love to Israel endures forever. Imagine that 70 years of nothing, and now... They're back home, they've got the altar, they've laid the foundation of the temple. They've they've spent 70 years wondering if God actually does love them, if he actually is good, and now they're back in Jerusalem. The Lord is good. 
No wonder, in verse 11, they gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. But verse 12 says the old timers were disappointed. And it's not because the young guys had guitars on the stage. This is not a complaint about church music, as much as some people would like to make it out to be that way. These are people that have seen the former temple. And even though they're happy to be back, and the new temple's being built, there's something missing. There's this mixture of joy and weeping. Now, there's a little detour in chapter 4 that I almost skipped, but it's kind of one of my pet soapboxes, so I'm not going to skip it. Because it leads to why there's discontentment. And, and if, if you look at chapter 4, it begins to show us the problem with kings and temples. In chapter 4, I'm just going to read the first five verses. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, these are people in the land that were there, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and they said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God. And have been sacrificing to him since the time of Eshardon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, when you read this text, there's two ways to look at it. The typical way is they came back to the land. There were people that had been living there forever that were their enemies, and their enemies said, let us help you as an attempt to thwart them rebuilding the temple. That's the way most of the commentators read it. I've been wrestling with a different perspective because I, <laughs> I have seen people who want to have a relationship with God but who get hurt by those in religious power and struggle with it and feel the pain. And so part of me sees it and says, here's these people that say, we worship your God. We've been sacrificing to him ever since we've been here. We want to help you build the temple. And the, the Jewish religious leader says, you have no part with us. Which is interesting. We're going to build our temple. How are they building it? With Cyrus, king of Persia's support. Do you get that? They're saying, we can't cooperate with you Gentiles, but we'll take money from this Gentile. Right? And I was wrestling, which is it? Is it their enemies? Because that's what all the common and smart people say. And then there's me that says, it's these people who really want to worship God, but get hurt. And, and I didn't really know where to go with it until the wise Jake Giles and I had a conversation. And Jake brought up something that really rung true to me. And he said, look how they tie their allegiance both to a king. The guys that have been there go way back. Guess who brought us here? The king of Assyria brought us here. And then the Jews say, well, Cyrus, king of Persia, told us to build a temple. It's kind of like my dad's stronger than your dad. Do you hear that happening? And, and so what, what these people do who are upset either because they can't hinder or they can't help they write back to Persia, and, and chapter 4, 5, and part of 6 is all these letters going back. And what, what I want you to see there is this. There's this political anchoring of worship. The Jews are anchoring their right to build the temple in Cyrus, king of Persia. And the other people who are already in the land are anchoring. They're, they're writing back and saying, they can't do that. It's a political arguing over who's going to control the temple. Now, this, that's what, this is why it's my rabbit trail. Because there's a warning here, I think, 
for us to refuse to seek to manipulate political power to gain religious power. I think that's important. I don't know that that ever happens in the world today. I don't know if you can think of any situations where people... Anyway. But I, I think we need to be the people of God as we're building the temple. And you'll see, what happens is when you lean on political power to establish your religious power, when you do that, still something is missing. It's foreshadowed by the tears and the grief of the older Jews, but if you turn over to chapter 6, verse 15, when they finally get the temple built, Ezra 6, this is several years later, Verse 15, the temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. Now, sounds like great. The temple's back, right? But there's something missing. And you can only see it if you look at the whole scope of what's gone on. If you go back to the tabernacle, you remember the tabernacle was the first movable temple and they set up the tent and they installed the things and they dedicated the temple, the same word that's used here. And do you remember what happened? In Exodus 40, verse 34, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In case you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to tell you twice. After they set up the tabernacle, they stood back, they dedicated it, and God's presence went right there. Years later, when Solomon would finally build the temple, and they, they built the temple and they filled it with all the things, and then they had this prayer of dedication, and it says in 1 Kings 8.10, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But when this temple is dedicated, we don't see that, do we? That's, that's one of the things that's missing. And it's an indicator for us to realize something about this idea of temple, understanding temple as presence all throughout the Bible. You know, we talked last week about exile that was an event, but it became a theme. We're going to watch that video we skipped in just a minute. But, but temple is the same thing. It's a thing. It's a temple. It's an object. But it becomes a theme all throughout Scripture that stands for the presence of God. And it leads all the way to Revelation 21, 22, where, where John says, I did not see a temple in the city. There's not a temple there. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What, what the Bible says all along is the purpose of a temple is to house the presence of God. We saw that in the tabernacle. We see it in Solomon's temple. But here's this post-exilic temple. It's not there. Let's trace it through the Bible. First, we see it in creation. It's seen in creation. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this. There's a, there's a book written by a guy named John Walton called The Lost World of Genesis 1. I think there's a picture. Is there a picture of that book up there, Reed? Or did I send that to you? Yeah? Oh. Doesn't show pictures on me. Really. Okay, good. Um, John Walton, and I, I agree with him. He, he's not going to solve your dilemma of creation and the order and all that. But, but one of the things he says is, if you look through historical documents, people in that time had written about how they set up temples, 
how pagans would set up their temple. The first three days they would form the temple, they would build it. The second three days they would fill it with the religious artifacts. And then the seventh day they would step back and the God would descend and rest in the temple. Now if you think about Genesis, you see three days of God creating and forming this world. And then you see three days of God filling it with with humans and with animals and and the plants start bearing food. And then what happens on the seventh day? It says, and and God rested. The whole idea of creation is that the earth is the temple of the Lord. It's the place where his presence is. And And the symbolism of what is happening in Genesis is God is saying to all the other nations who've set up their little pagan temples, you want to see a temple? The earth is my temple. I made it, I filled it, and I live in it. That, that's, that's seen in creation. It goes on, though. We lose that. We lose that presence with the fall, right? It's not as, as evident. And then in the tabernacle, we see God with them, right? It's this movable temple. It's perched in the middle of a camp. I've got a picture of that, too, I think, right? Is there a picture there? Yeah. I mean, this is an actual photo from the time, <laughs> but... This is an artist render, but there's the tabernacle, and it's right in the middle. The camps are all, the, the, the peoples are all around it to show God's presence in the middle of them. And it says in Exodus 40, 36 to 38, in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Once again, this mobile temple, tabernacle, is the presence of God with his people. It's a beautiful and powerful symbol that's picked up when Solomon builds a temple and you see God on Mount Zion, right? In in Jerusalem, this temple that I actually walked across the courtyard a few weeks ago. We're going to talk more about that tonight if you you want to come out. But it says, once again, that passage, 1 Kings 8, which we read before, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of Solomon. The priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. See, for Jewish people, <laughs> the temple was not like our church building. Our church building is a place we come, and we meet here together, and we learn, and we, we worship. For Jewish people, the temple was the presence of God. It was the, sim, the tangible way they could tell where God was. That's why the exile was so devastating, because the temple was destroyed. And, and now they come and they say, where is God in our exile? Seventy years later, they've built the temple again, but there's something not the same. And while they're thankful for the temple, the truth is that they still feel like they're in exile, even though they're home. There's this video put out by the Bible Project. It's four minutes long. I want you to see it because it helps understand the theme of exile. If you can run that read. There's something about being home, where everything's just right. We're surrounded by people we love and trust. There's a feeling of stability and safety. And while some people get to experience this kind of home, many do not. Others might even be forced to leave their home and go live in a foreign land. We call this going into exile. Yeah, in exile, everything is disoriented. You're in the unknown. And in the story of the Bible, this is where the ancient Israelites found themselves conquered by Babylon, living in exile far from their homeland. And so they had to ask themselves, 
How did we end up here? And is there any hope of going home? And the whole story of the Bible is designed to address those very questions. The whole story? Really? Yeah, go back to the first pages of the Bible. Where does humanity live? Okay, they live in this really sweet garden, their home. And they're there on one condition, that they trust and follow God's one command, and they don't. And so the consequence is banishment from the garden. Ah, they're sent into exile. Exactly. And so this story has been designed to set you up for Israel's story. How they were given the gift of the promised land and were able to stay there on one condition, that they be faithful to the terms of their covenant relationship with God. Uh, They didn't, and they were sent into exile. And if you still don't see the parallel between exile from the garden and exile from Israel, think about this. In Genesis, humanity's exile led up to the story about the building of what city? Oh yeah, Babylon. The same place the Israelites are sent. But that's not the end of either story. In the first Babylon, God called Abraham to leave and travel to the promised land. And that story was designed to give hope to the Israelites currently living in the later Babylon. Now eventually, they do get to leave and travel back to their promised homeland. And when they did, it wasn't home sweet home. Oppressive empires were still ruling over them, and the people kept acting in the same corrupt ways as their ancestors. And so the biblical prophets said that exile wasn't actually over. How could they think they were still in exile when they're at home? Yeah, this is really important. In the Hebrew scriptures, Israel's Babylonian exile became an image of something more universal. It's that feeling of alienation and longing for something more no matter where you live. Yeah, I I can relate to this. I have a great home, but it's situated in a world scarred with pain and broken relationships, death, tragedy, done by others, but also done by me. And so in the Bible, exile is the human condition. We all keep repeating this pattern of human corruption leading to a Babylon that we can't escape. And it doesn't matter where you live, we are all longing for a better home. Now, Israel's scriptures held out hope that one day God would send a king who would rescue the world from all of the Babylons we've created. And after many generations pass, we meet this Israelite named Jesus of Nazareth. He wandered about with no home, announcing the great restoration, that reality of home that Israel and all humanity has been looking for. Yeah, Jesus really cared about people who didn't have homes. He welcomed in the stranger. He said God's love is shown when you invite in the outcast and throw parties for people who don't have a place to belong. Jesus also claimed that Israel and all humanity had lost its way. That our self-centeredness drives us to create false homes based on status and power, and these inevitably exclude others. We live in an exile of our own making. But Jesus said the true way home is one of weakness, of service, and of forgiveness. And then Jesus went into exile alongside us to show us the true way home. Which is? Well, Jesus said he is the way. His life and self-giving love proved more powerful than humanity's failure. He opened up a pathway to our real home. And as Jesus' followers committed themselves to him, they discovered this new way of being human. They believed that the real return from exile had begun. And so they would call themselves sojourners or wanderers. Oh, right. They would say things like, the world isn't our home and we're citizens of heaven. 
And so Jesus' followers remain exiles as they wait for that day when Jesus returns to transform this world into a true home. See, this idea of exile has expanded, and we even feel it today. We feel that longing for the completion of what Jesus has started. We're on this pathway, we're on this journey, this longing for a new heaven, new earth, and, and even the Jewish temple of Jesus' day, right? They, they, Herod built this, this great temple, unbelievable, one of the seven wonders of the, of, of the ancient world, but it still did not have that presence of God. So, so where is that? Where is that cloud descending? Where is that fire that symbolizes the presence of God? Well, there's something that happens in the New Testament you need to realize. In Acts chapter 2, it says, when Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The New Testament writers pick up on the fact that this is the descent of God's glory into his temple. 1 Corinthians six 19. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God, you're not your own. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building, temple, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. You see, we do live in exile. We're on this journey home, but the temple of God is right here with us. We are the temple of God in a world in exile. That's what the New Testament teaches. And, and that's why I want to wrap up really quickly, as I look at my clock, with three realities of today's exilic temple. See, all these themes of exile and temple from 2,500 years ago, they seem so far away, but the truth is they're so powerful if you can understand what the Bible is communicating about where we are today. 1 Peter 2, remember 1 Peter starts by calling us exiles. In 1 Peter 2, he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, also known as a temple, to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We now become the temple of God in the world. Okay? So what does that mean? There's three things I'll leave you with. It's got ripples to it, and I love these. The first one is this. Because we are the temple of God in the world, we are not limited by feelings of exile. How many of you have felt a feeling of exile? Let me describe them for you. A loss of someone you loved. A diagnosis of cancer. Anxiety, fear, depression, desperation as the world seems spiraling out of control. All of those are feelings of exile, and they're legitimate feelings. <laughs> there are reasons we feel this way. The first believers felt this way. There's that story of the two guys on the road, well, a guy and a girl could be, on the road to Emmaus as they talked and discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still with their faces downcast. 
One of them named Cleopas said, Are you the only visiting Jerusalem? Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he goes on to say, We thought this Jesus was the guy that was going to redeem Israel. They had feelings of exile. And guess who was standing right beside them? The truth of us as the temple of God doesn't mean we don't have feelings of exile, but it means those feelings do not correctly describe reality. God is with us. 1 John 4, 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, I've got these two things and I'm going to use them because I brought them up here and I've got to take them back. How many of you think that if I build a bridge, how many of you have faith that this bridge will hold me? Some of you are like, I don't know, he's you put on a few pounds. Okay, Dawn, see, yeah. And see, I, I've done it several times and there I am, right? You guys had faith, it worked. Right? Now, what about this? What about this bridge? What if I say I'm, you know, I'm, I'm brave, and, and I, how many of you have faith that this bridge will hold me? But what if I have great faith? I'm, I'm a man of faith. I really believe this bridge can hold me. Right? And, and I can step up there with my great faith, and it's not going to hold me. <laughs> my point is this. Your feelings... Yeah. Far too often we think, oh, I just don't have enough faith. I don't, I don't believe. If I had no faith that that plank would hold me, would that plank hold me? Yes. If I had tremendous faith that the stick would hold, would that hold me? No. It's not your faith. It's the object you put your faith in. Right? And that's why feelings of exile that you feel are normal. That's, but, but they don't describe the true reality. The true reality is that you are the temple of God. God's presence is with you right here, right now. And as we begin to understand that, it moves us from a me to a we. You see, in in our world, we often think, I am the temple of God, which is true, but it's very individualistic. And one of the things we see about the evil one, that he wants to isolate us. He wants to separate us. He wants it to be all about us. That's one of the dangers of being afraid of a pandemic as we pull away from everybody and we lose what we were meant to be, right? Look at that 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5 again. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, plural, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We together are a house where God lives. We need each other. We actually belong to each other. In, first, in Romans 12, it says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. <laughs> we need us. You need you. You need me. I need you. And we don't, know, we don't understand actually what we do need, but God has said this is what we need. We need encouragers. We also need those who challenge you here. There are people in this room, I'm sure, that you're not very fond of. You need them, and they need you, because we together are the temple of God. We need the soft, and we need the abrasive. God has put us together, and the sooner we can see that we need each other, the better off we will be. Please, I'm I'm seeing more and more, we've got to get past this church as something we consume, a place where we go to get filled up. It, it's, it's, not a, it's not a vending machine where we go get our spiritual fill-up for the week. It's a community where we go live together, 
And we remember what's true, and sometimes people make us really angry, and we have to live out what's true because we've committed to this community. What you need is the community of faith and what it will do to you over the long haul of your life. And finally, that unites us in a greater purpose. Those verses again, 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now skip down to verse 9 and 10. Listen to this. You, plural, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. I I know it's late. Give me three minutes and I'll be done. You have three minutes? I coach basketball. Have I ever told you that? (laughs) One of the things that's been a real turning point in our basketball program is about six or seven years ago, I was struck with the idea. I think it was a divine revelation, but I won't preach on it much. That we weren't going to win games trying to teach basketball skills. What we needed to do was, was create a vision on the team of making the girls better, better people and changing the culture of Hope Secondary School, which felt like a school that had losing athletic teams. And I shared that with the girls, and they took it on. And, and two out of the last three years, we've come within one game of making provincials. There's something bigger happening, and we're not that good. But what the, the vision of something that they could make a difference in the world, that they could be better people, <clears throat> that they could sacrifice and serve... That, that compels them to do things that I would never do on their own. It's funny, the power of that vision. Now, if that gets them excited, and even their parents excited. We had parents watching games online last night that our kids aren't even playing in because they love what we're doing so much. If that gets them excited, how much more is us being the temple of God? And, and declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. How, more, how much more compelling is that vision? Do you see that? We live in a world of exile where people are longing to go home. I love that image with the golden road you know, branching out. That's what we do. This, this is the greatest calling that we could ever imagine. As we walk through Lent, as we wrestle with our feelings of exile and our struggles, as we, as we wrestle with our own failures and our sins... Let's not forget that in this period of exile, it is God who is with us and in us, all of us together. That's what connects us to each other. And that's the gift that we have to share with the whole wide world. That's the calling we have is to be the temple of God so that people can see who he is in a world of exile. Let's pray. how the scriptures say, and who is up to such a task? We feel so weak in and of ourselves. Just remind us that it is not in and of ourselves that we do this. We have each other and we have you, your spirit living in us to proclaim your beauty and your glory and your power and your majesty and your grace and forgiveness and love to a world that desperately hungers for it, even if they don't realize it. God, this week I just pray you would open opportunities for each person in this room to live as the temple of God. That as we walk into homes and and jobs and uh, coffee shops and restaurants 
that as we walk up and down our street, that, that your presence would be with us, in us, and that you would flow out through us to this world in exile, and you would bring about the transformation that people are longing for. Help us to follow where you lead, because we know that you do great things. Help us to, to walk this journey with you, knowing that you will do exceedingly above all we could ask or imagine. In your name we pray. Amen.